This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. We're sponsored by Neomodern.com, bringing concierge photo printing and framing to everyone with a smartphone. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neomodern, and grumpy old man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Rubin. Are you keeping keeping cool today? Not cool enough. I am, I'm a warm individual <laughs> with poofy... Fluffy hair right now. <laughs> are you are you back in San Francisco or are you in Rio? I'm, I'm in San Francisco and I'm enjoying the heat just like you are. Oh man, <laughs> I don't know when this. Ha- I guess summer literally happened yesterday. It just it started. It certainly did. It yeah. certainly did. Um, well, cool. how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm having it. Uh, and I've been like sort of chatting with our guest here before, which I'm not supposed to do, but I was so excited to, <laughs> to talk with him. Um, He's pretty exciting. I'm pretty excited to talk to him too. Oh, cool. Well, let me tell you a little story. Um, like, okay. I don't know, a few months ago, maybe four or five months ago before the, the thing, um, my mom was at, uh, the Harn Museum in Gainesville and there was a talk, uh, on Cortez, a photographer who, uh, my family loves and she loves and she she called me up afterwards and said this guy came and spoke and he was amazing and you should give him a ring and I said did you get his card she's like no you just got to figure out who he was and go call, find him and call him up <laughs> <laughs> but I did and um and I asked him to join us so I have one of the I don't know the curator of the of the Andre Cortez estate an expert on Cortez uh, wow. Robert Gerbo Robert this is Suzanne Hi, Robert. Nice to meet you. Hi, Suzanne. Nice to meet you, too. Did I get that right? Are you the yeah, curator? Yeah. Of that? yeah, I guess that's it. Is it- it's funny. When I, when I was uh, standing in the um, exhibition in 2005 at the National Gallery, I, I, I looked at my wife and I said, so I guess this is what I'm doing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing before you were doing this? Um, I had been a photographer for a good number of years. Um, I started photographing when I was 16 or 17 and, um, was thankfully, um, given a Cortez book early on. And, um, that kind of fueled me and gave me direction in life. And, uh, I spent many years emulating what he had done and trying to take on what he had done why is uh, so uh, maybe our listeners don't know who andre cortez is and so okay. perhaps you could fill him in i, I mean he's a, a wonderful photographer but he's not as well known as the ansel adams and the westons right. of the world why do you think that is and what and what <laughs> what makes him sort of different from those guys andre would have a few explicatives to add to Sorry. why but <laughs> um uh he was not the greatest of advertisers um, of promoting his own work. Um, his story is complicated. Um, he was born in the, the 1890s, um, uh, began photographing in 1912, uh, was in World War One. He was wounded. He moved to Paris in 25 um, and had this fabulous career for a number of years. Um, he has a very complicated love life, and um, as everybody does, I Elizabeth guess. wasn't the, the his first and only love. Um, she was his first and only love. He had the indiscretion of having another marriage in between, which he attempted to hide. I mean, it's just this incredible. I mean, his life is one O. Henry story after another. Um, um, and he was always willing to tell them and always willing to embellish them and kind of dress them up. But the reality is, is that um, he had a long career. He photographed from 1912 to 1985. He was constantly reinventing himself and reigniting his career and was not great at promoting and he got stuck in a cycle uh, when he came to the United States in 1936 and spent many years in a very dark place mentally um, trying to get out of a, a I mean I, I'm 
I'm being more mysterious than 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 it is. I mean, he basically just um, had a long, dark, dry period where he created a great body of work. Um, what pictures but, were were sort of indicative <clears throat> of that period? Maybe um, the arm arm and ventilator. Oh yeah, um, lost cloud, um, which is a photograph of a cloud, which he defined as a self portrait. Uh, melancholic tulip. He also defined as a self portrait. Um, really? The fascinating thing about him is he has this great body of entry-level photographs that everybody gets um uh, i always say that the photographs enter in my enter through my chest <laughs> before they go through my eyes um, really? <laughs> you know, they, they kind of um they enter your soul they enter your psyche um i often find um when people come to look at the work at my office um oddly you know, before long, they're talking about problems with their family, with their with their mother, you know, or with their brother or their father or their love life. Um, and the work elicits this kind of emotional response um, and people don't even know why. Um, is he the only photographer that makes you feel that way? That sort of, is that why you sort of became the curator of his work? Yeah. <laughs> he's, the only, he's, I mean, there are a few others. I like Sudak. Um, um, there's a handful of, um, other photographs that I like. Um, and, um, of course, you know, being the curator has exposed me to the history of photography. So I've seen a lot of material, but Andre is the only one who ever really spoke to me. I mean, I feel like when I was 16 or 17, I was given this, you know, I was just stoned out, aimless middle-class teenager, um, and all of a sudden, I had this little book of photographs that that just spoke to me and um, gave me this kind of sense of there was something somebody could do with with their eyes and their thinking. Any particular images in that book that that? Um, um, initially, it was superficial photographs. Um, the the photographs of the children reading. Um, some of the real kind of famous greatest hits um uh, which still do it for me but um after he passed away um you know i started digging into the archive and um realized it was this um andre always said you know this is my story he he came up with these lines of um you know that that uh, the photographs were autobiographical and you know I thought it was him just kind of trying to work in a soundbite um, <laughs> you know and um, you know by by the time I I really began to understand the body of work um, it was really a story of his life I mean if you go through the timeline and who he was and this kind of you know, the striving to be somebody, the grabbing of equipment uh, to fuel his art and um, embracing new ideas and, and, and moving on. And uh, the body of work is this um, incredible investigation of himself and his life with Elizabeth. And, you know, early on, he, he, um, he went to a machinist and had a... a, a, a small it almost looked like a wind-up toy um thing uh that became a self-timer so he could be in his own photographs <laughs> and, and 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 what most people don't know is that he created thousands of self-portraits um as an adjunct to the body of work um so when 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 i do these talks which your your mother uh, happened to witness i kind of combine all these self-portraits with the images that people know and kind of put it in this timeline and and this this um incredible story of how i mean what what fascinates me is how he kept reinventing himself and how he kept being true to his art um and yeah. Uh, so the, I mean, you're talking about these selfies. The one of the pictures that we have is uh, a, a photograph of Elizabeth, and there's a hand on her shoulder. And sure. I didn't. Sure. I, I just felt like it's it's called Elizabeth, and right. I was surprised years later to discover there's a wider shot which he'd done with a timer, I guess. And mm -hmm. it's he's it's him and Elizabeth, and he's cropped it down to just her and a hand. 
Is that yeah? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> he shot it in 1933. Although there are some times when he's misdated it, it's 1931. So just to go back to the o. Henry sagas. Um, so Andre meets Elizabeth um, post World War One. Um, he's um, uh, he's got a decent amount of experience with a camera, but he's being forced to work um, by his family. Um, he, his, his father had died when he was younger and his uncle was a grain merchant and was pushing him into, um, into banking. Um, <clears throat> and clearly he was, he was miserable as a banker. Um, and he would photograph uh, on weekends and on vacations and after hours. Um, and he meets Elizabeth um, when he's working at the bank and she brings him to a circle of artists. And they become enmeshed in trading ideas and fueling each other. And um, by 1925, um, uh, the reason we have this information is because Andre wrote in diaries of his, his experiences with her. And he writes in his diary, Elizabeth was uh, so stern with me today. I met her on the steps of the library and um, she told me that she was going to withhold her love from me, that I was lost in my love for her, and that unless I found myself, um, that um, she was going to withhold her love from me, and that the only way I would be able to find myself if I were to leave Budapest. I'm paraphrasing here, of okay. course, <laughs> because this is, this is translated from Hungarian um, and... Um, <clears throat> so uh, basically, um, uh, she expels him from Budapest and tells him that she will, uh, he should contact her when he's established himself. And he, and he, so he moves to Paris. Um, he gets permission from his family. He saves some money so he has enough money to be in Paris for a year. And um, he moves to Paris in October of 1925. Um, by 1926, he is the rave of Paris. He's already spent 13 or 14 years photographing in Hungary. And um, all of his formulas were um, completely worked out in terms of um, technical stuff, um, in terms of doing portraits. He had worked on his brother. He had worked on Elizabeth. And I know this is a long way around the answer of the half photograph. <laughs> um, <clears throat> So um, 1928, he meets another artist by the name of Rosa Klein. She's living in the same building. They marry. Um, there's a, he's in this Hungarian enclave. Um, by 1931 or so, Elizabeth shows up and um, basically takes back her man. Um, <laughs> shortly after Elizabeth arrives in Paris, uh, Cortez uh, divorces Rosa Klein and um, Elizabeth arrives, and that portrait is a wedding portrait of the two of them. And it's a fascinating portrait if you look at it as just the full image. Um, uh, it's a photograph of Elizabeth and him with his arm around her. See, he's got his arm on her shoulder. And the title of the photograph is Elizabeth and I. Right. And uh, there are a handful of crops that he had done in 1933. And then, of course, he moves to New York in 36. He leaves his negatives with somebody. He loses track of that person. And it isn't until 1963 that he, he in this you know, another O. Henry story meets up with the person who actually took his negatives from Paris and buried them in a bomb shelter in the south of France during the war. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he then retrieves <clears throat> his negatives. And of course, this negative is part of that grouping. And he starts playing with it again. And he crops it to this half face um, of Elizabeth with his hand on his shoulder. And it's titled Elizabeth and I. And he said, from the moment he made it, the photograph, um, he wanted to um, relay or um, create an image that was um, uh, a visualization of a Hungarian saying, my better half. Um, so <laughs> Elizabeth was his better half. Why is um, Satiric Dancer so famous? How did that become such a famous image? 
I think any, you, and, I'll show and this can picture. Can you describe it? <laughs> okay. Um, satiric answer, Dancer is a photograph of uh, Magda Forstner. I'm not going to pronounce her name properly. She was a dancer um, and married to uh, the artist Bothe. And the sculpture in the background is a Bothe sculpture. And... Um, Andre was there on some sort of assignment. Um, they were friends, but certainly he was there to document some of the sculpture. And she just offered to, to create this pose mimicking the sculpture. Um, uh. It's just part of the milieu of that whole period where artists would just... Uh, on this feeding frenzy off of each other. Um, he, he was friends with a number, I mean, clearly Mondrian was a friend or an acquaintance. M M Mondrian was an assignment initially. Oh, um, really? And um, uh, it's so intimate. These pictures are yeah, so. Yeah, he, he visited a number of times. Um, I mean, I always say the, the, the thing that makes the Mondrian photographs um, so. Um, alive um is that they were a form of communication between two men who didn't really have a common language um so mondrian was in paris uh, he's from holland um and um uh, andre's in in paris and he's from hungary i mean if you spoke with andre in 1978 um his uh his language was called Cartesian. Um, you know, there would be a, uh, a past tense, a present tense uh, verb in, in, in the same sentence. Um, one word would be French, another would be Hungarian, and it would always <laughs> be followed with, you understand. Um, it's, it's a pigeon. It's a, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> which is which is also why he was not so great at promoting himself. Um, his grasp of English was was quite limited, um, and he arrives in New York um, uh, when the magazine world is exploding. He arrives in New York like a week after Life magazine uh, started. Um, and um, just can't find a niche in that in that whole magazine world, um, and um, ends up in fights and ends up um, in lawsuits. And um, you know, part of his saga too was um, being so mistreated. I mean, you go from being the rave of Paris in 1926, 27, 28 to arriving in New York just as the magazine world is about to explode. And then he's completely ignored. Um, yeah. And he can't, he can't find a niche in that world. And the reality is, is that um, photography had in, in my mind, and this is, you know, my analysis of it, which could be dead wrong. Um, <clears throat> when he started photographing, um, the halftone process actually hadn't been invented. So photographs were not um, reproduced in magazines. Mm -hmm. It was only until um, around World War One when when photographs started to be used. And initially, magazines had illustrations in them: woodblock uh, prints, etchings, uh, sometimes drawings. Um, so when he started envisioning becoming a a, a magazine photographer, he was saw himself as an illustrator um mm. and um so initially you have the photographs like i'm jumping ahead to 1920s where he does the eiffel tower photograph um that was an assignment and really? he was told yeah he was told it was it was some anniversary of the eiffel tower and go take some pictures and we'll we'll write a story around it i, I will say that um that photo, the shadow of the Eiffel Tower, was my father's, arguably one of his favorite photographs. He had it in his private study. He had a, a particularly large print of it, so it probably wasn't vintage. But uh, he had it in his study, he had it in his office. It moved with him. It was with him when he hmm. passed away. It was right there. And 
Um, while he would never have identified like that is my number one favorite picture, I felt that that was. But I never understood why he liked it mm-hmm. so much. He didn't really talk a ton about it. I wonder if you could shed any light on what is special about that picture to you. I, I think it's about looking at things a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was assigned to go fight, photograph the Eiffel Tower. You'd think he'd photograph the Eiffel Tower as Correct. opposed to the <laughs> as opposed to the shadow that it 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 threw. Um, and uh, the shadow becomes emblematic of 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 the shadow of Parisian society down below, um, and it becomes. Um, a reflection of of the 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 tower as opposed to the actual tower although there i think the feet of the tower are in in the photograph um sure. it's just you know uh, his his ability to kind of um uh, have a point of view <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of his photographs that strike people in 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 different ways are um, are almost uh, film noir. Um, they're afterthought. Um, you know, there's a person leaving the house, and the camera pans to the keys that they left at the table, and you realize it's going to throw the plot off into another direction. <laughs> um, so Andre was always looking for the plot going in another direction. Interesting. Um, and you know, and his pictures changed. I mean, uh, with a long career, I suppose it's it's natural. But if I look at Ansel Adams' pictures over his lifetime, they're remarkably identifiable. Ansel Adams, they're very consistent in a lot of ways, same arguably with Weston. But when I look at Cortege, it, I, you th- I could easily convince you it was five different photographers from the, <laughs> from the distortions to the early stuff. To, and, and Martinique, uh, which was relatively late in his life, one of, it, it took maybe 10 years for that to grow on me, and it's one of my favorite photos now, but it wasn't when I first saw it. Uh, and I'll show a picture of it. It's a it's a picture from a hotel balcony, maybe uh, looking. But you see a kind of a person in the next room through a distorted glass, and the ocean is sort of out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's it's surreal. It's well, strange. they're like yeah, they're like um, blurred. It's almost there's like no just subject. A shadow of of a person. Yeah, it's a mysterious. It's mysterious. And it almost yeah, looks like yeah. it could be if Dolly took photographs. <laughs> I mean, it really, yeah, yeah. it is abstract where you have half of it, which looks like reality. And then there's this slice on the left-hand side, which is, is completely um, obscured and, so, and really vague. So he was growing, like, did he just, was he unsatisfied with these or he kept pushing himself? How, what was he like? Um, what was he, he like? <laughs> um, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, <laughs> but you didn't know uh, him. Yeah. You worked with him, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I spent seven years on and off, um, maybe eight years. I can never quite do the math right. <laughs> um, uh, I met him in 1978, um, and he passed away in 85. So I spent seven years working for him on and off. Um, uh, when I met him, um, <laughs> I, I, I had obsessed on him for well over seven years. Um, after I was given this book as a teenager, um, uh, I received other books as gifts that were of his work. And I went to shows looking for his work. Um, and I was a walking encyclopedia of his photographs. Um, I knew, I knew nothing about his life because, um, there were only these short synopsis of his um of his these little bios that were really designed to promote him as a photographer who kept working throughout his whole life so i knew very little of his story but i knew these photographs um uh you know um inside and out um uh, i always say it jokingly but it's true i went from uh comic books to mad magazine to these Cortez books, and I would, I would, I would have uh, alongside my bed when I went to sleep at night. I would just sift through the Cortez books to go to sleep, and um, uh, I would dream them. I would then go out and try and emulate them. So by the time um, uh, I met him, I, he, he had kind of built up in my mind as this kind of godlike figure, and. Um, 
uh, I, how did you meet? Like um, how how I mean, I'm sure this was arranged, but how did you? It was arranged. Meet him? Um, I, I had become a um, in the '70s. Um, there was a program called the Cultural Council Foundation CETA Artist Program, and CETA was a comprehensive employment training act, comprehensive employment training act. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a program that um, a, a number of people put together this, this program uh, and they were trying to kind of emulate the WPA. Um, yeah. And um, they hired a bunch of artists and uh, I was, I guess, good enough to have gotten on that role. Congratulations. And, um, and um, part of the program since they the people who envisioned it they thought it was going to last a long time um the funding got cut out from under it after two years um and they they organized um artist archives so we had to submit work uh, and we had to submit to a conversation with a uh, person who was going to um you know, document who we were. So I was interviewed by this woman by the name of Nancy Stevens. And she said to me, okay, at some point, you know, after she turned the mic off, um, something to the effect of, I hear the Brooklyn accent, um, you know, your pictures don't look New York, they look more Eastern European. Um, and um, asked me where that came from. She goes, I hear the Brooklyn accent, you know, <laughs> explain. And I went on and on and on about Andre and how I loved his work. And she turned out to know him. Wow. And yeah. uh, she said, I have to bring you to him. Um, <laughs> and I think a couple of months went by before it actually was arranged because while he was in this deep period of mourning for his wife, he was also globetrotting. Um, uh, going to openings and exhibitions uh, because his work was really starting to cele be celebrated. So by the time um, I got to meet him, I had developed this horrendous cold. Um, and in its aftermath, I had kind of lost my voice. Oh, no. So I'm going there and Andre is... Um, uh, this little old angry man <laughs> and um, uh, really I can't understand him he can't understand me and um, it, it's like uh, you know you you finally get to meet God and find out he's human <laughs> and, uh, and George Burns in Oh God right? yeah 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 <laughs> it's like and he, you know he's he's telling stories and uh and it's just not clicking. And then finally, in some sort of desperate moment, I opened up a book and I pointed to a picture and I said, how, how did you do this? <laughs> and, and he then started talking about the moments before and how the picture was taken and how. What picture? Um, it's, um, it's a photograph of wine cellars. The title is Budafuck, <laughs> um, or Budafuck. Um, you know, you might have to change that, but um, really, and it's 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 this photograph of of from up above. It's 1920s, um, and it has a dozen vignettes in it, and it's just this incredible picture. And to me, it's a story of his beginning of his journey to Paris. Um, there are so many little pieces. There's a, there's a woman putting clothes on the line that represents his mother. There's a person sitting in the field that um, is planted, uh, which is what would have happened to him if he had stayed. There's a person walking towards the city in the background. And he said to me, a very interesting choice. Um, uh, um, he said, uh, the original intent of the photograph was quite juvenile. Um, I had a new lens, and when I put it on a certain angle, it distorted everything in the background. And what it was distorting was wine cellars. And what I wanted to do was make this uh, metaphor in that the photograph was distorting was distorting your your vision the way you would if you had consumed what was in the wine cellars um <laughs> and he said but i know something else happened i know it's a very uh 
the photograph, there's so many more pieces to the puzzle. Um, it's it's an absolute masterpiece, and it's not really recognized as one. Um, Interesting. Was um, it before it, the distortions? Is that yeah, before melancholy? Yeah, too yeah, yep, yeah. And bef- um, it's post it's post um, underwater swimmer. Um, underwater swimmer is a photograph that Andre did in 1917. You might check the date on that one. Okay. But um, and he, he was recovering from a war wound, and swimming was part of the daily regiment. And he is sitting on the bleachers above a pool and he's watching this guy dive through the water and he's seeing how the light refracted the guy's body. And he creates this incredible portrait of of this person kind of cutting through the water and his body is all battered, um, which to me is emblematic of what had happened to him and everybody during this war. Um, But still there's this kind of life and life force where the guy is getting projected forward in the photograph. And I see this as the beginning of, of, of his serious work as a photographer. And I see um, the photograph you mentioned is melancholic tulip, another photograph with water being the opposite end of that. Um, The water is turned to stone in melancholic tulip. Um, And um, the two images are the beginning and end of, of uh, his, his body, his body of work in a certain way. Um, And I always see them as, um, uh, I don't know if I'll be able to explain this, but uh, uh, Andre's photographs talk to each other. <laughs> um, uh, he worked in Paris. He had the circle of artists that he worked with. In Hungary, he had a circle of artists he worked with. In New York, um, he lost that, that community. Um, and Elizabeth became his sole supporter. Um, he appears to have had some sort of... Uh, I wouldn't say a mental breakdown, but he had a physical breakdown in 1939. And um, he was a fragile soul. Um, I mean, one of the things that is, is uh, to me, so incredible about his photography is that he, he exposes his fragility in, in the photographs. But he encrypts them in these beautiful sense of design and this beautiful sense of um of of play that you look at a photograph that's incredibly sad or incredibly powerful and you're just lost in the beauty of it and somehow the the soulful the soul searching kind of seeps into you through the back door um uh and it it it, it's a way of kind of um um relaying i mean i see the body of work as as a a search for self. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's always um, when you say he's you know it's those five different careers. I mean I think I actually I break it down between five different periods, um, and um, you know there is um, early Hungary. There's post World War One. There's um, the circle of artists. Then there's the early Paris images, and then there's Elizabeth returning, and then there's New York early period, and then New York post-1963, when he spent uh, 16 or 17 years working for House and Garden doing um, interiors and architectural photography, which he defined as hack work. Um, <laughs> and and when, when he meets Brassai in 1962 for the first time in many years, he says to Brassai, you're looking at a dead man. Um, he felt he had died doing this work. Um, wow. And um, uh, he um, reinvents himself in many different ways. Um, oftentimes it's by grasping new technology. Um, in 1928, he embraces the Leica um, uh, in, in 1936, he comes to New York and he starts working four by five. Um, he's known as the, uh, the photographer who embraced the Leica, um, and that, uh, he's known as a 35 millimeter photographer, but he played with all sorts of different formats. Um, and he started with a glass plate camera and ended his life with an SX-70. Um, you know, you know, um, why is he important? Why do you think he's an important photographer? Um, 
it's a given for me, so it's a hard question. Um, uh, a, he's influenced everybody. Um, even when you pick up an iPhone and take a picture, you're referencing him. Um, he's invented many of the um, many of the fo photographic vocabulary that many photographers continue to use today. Like what? Um, well. Um, just the idea of shooting down, um, the idea of capturing people in a casual manner. Um, um, his framing um, is, 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 is something that everybody kind of plays with. Um, he taught Brassais. He taught wow. Cartier-Bresson. Um, I could name 50 photographers whose thousands of pictures emulate one of his. Um, mm -hmm. um, but mostly the body of work is important and he's important because um, he was actually searching for a way to express himself. He always said that uh, I wasn't photographing a scene. I was photographing my feeling. Hmm. Um, and I think above anybody, um, he's an artist who was using a camera um, as opposed to a photographer. Um, he was always into reinventing himself and always into challenging himself. Um, and um, that's part of his downfall um, is that the body of work seems to be, have no continuity to it. Um, if, I, if I had an hour and a half and a, and a uh, PowerPoint presentation <laughs> time to give you, um, you would see the continuity. The story has a thread. Um, um, and a lot of it um, uh, has to do with his life with Elizabeth. Um, um, I, I've been doing these talks for um, I guess about 30 years, and they've certainly evolved. Um, I do a lecture on Cortez that I often do in colleges or museums or um, at galleries. And um, I kind of take about 300 images and jumble them around and, you know, move them and add things. And if, if Elizabeth's so central, I mean, maybe it's just sort of my slice through knowing his work, but like Harry Callahan features his wife through his entire body of work. You can't mm -hmm. not know who Eleanor is if you look at Harry Callahan's work. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth does not feature in Cortez's work that way for me, and I wondered if I'm just missing a huge slice of, of his photography. Um, I think a lot of people are. Um, he was working on a book of uh, photographs of Elizabeth. Um, I, I'm working on... A <laughs> I may never do it, but <laughs> I'm working. I'm working on a book of of photographs of he and Elizabeth, and it's more his autobi autobiographical journey photographically. Um, so they do so exist. Those pictures. They do exist. They okay. do exist. There's a lot of photographs of Elizabeth. Um, there was a stack uh, in a box. I would say there was about 250 prints. Um, they're not. Um, one of his um, big beefs with American photography was uh, the master print. He, while his prints are quite beautiful, um, you know, I, I was in a different school of photography before I met him. Um, I had been, uh, I was a political science major in college, but I, I ended up in the Brooklyn College Photography Department, which kind of um, delineated from Strand and Hine and um, where the master print was um, was the end all. Uh, and for product. our listeners, a master print meaning like making a beautiful physical execution of that image, right? Yeah. A beautiful yes. print. Yeah. So, you know, there's a whole process of burning and dodging, which you can do in Photoshop now and manipulating a print. But it's um, in the darkroom, it's a dance. Um, 
you you have all these pieces of cardboard and wires and little pieces of patches of paper and cutouts and um, you stand before this enlarger and you envision the picture and you try and do this whole thing with timing and um, you know sometimes it takes 15 to 20 prints before you get it and then there's this, there's this curve when you're printing and um, you know you push down highlights and you bring up uh, mid-tones and shadows. And um, so I had this batch of prints that I brought to him when I went to first see him and he opens up the book and he opens up the portfolio and he looks at the first print and he says to me, uh, if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to go to a photographer, you should have gone to a photographer. <laughs> you should have had a photographer made. <laughs> so he was acknowledging that it was a well-worked print, but his 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 point was I was overworking it. And then the second the second print um, that came up, um, uh, he said to me, "If you work this long in the dark room, it means your exposure was off." <laughs> and um, his prints in, in my light were very gray. Um, and um, uh, they lacked the kind of luster. Um, I've since learned that I was wrong, and he was right. Um, but um, he just looked at me and said, you know, the thing about photography is that it's simple, um, that it's easy. Um, you just have to, you know, learn the technology and, um, and not get caught up in, in the technology. It seems like you kind of like fell in love with his photography and then you sort of stayed for the stories. Um, yeah. you've, you've also said that his pictures talk to each other. Can you yeah. give an example of, I mean, as you've made these stories for him, you're making books of his work, um, whether it's the one you're going to do for Elizabeth, which we can't wait to check out, or if it's some of the previous ones you've already done. Can you tell us how you are able to tell his stories through your kind of curation? Um. Well, the pictures tell the story. Um, I mean, I feel like what I've tried to do for years is keep myself out of the story. Um, uh, Andre is the important part, and I've tried to lay back and just kind of present the pictures as I see them. But I've also learned over the years that I have a very unique vision of the body of work and... Um, uh, I've had the benefit of sitting with them for, you know, so I years. spent seven I spent <laughs> seven years before I met him looking at him. I spent seven years with him looking at them. And then I've spent the last 35 years um, uh, sifting through this body of work and trying to come to terms with what it's about. Um, and um, uh, probably 10 or 15 years after um he died, I opened up one box one day and I went like, oh my God, he does photograph what he feels. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it wasn't just a soundbite he created. And it yeah. took me that long to kind of absorb that this body of work was, was a deep emotional um, um, investigation of self. So what I try and do when I write is, is kind of tell his story. Um, I try and um, articulate what he was going through and what he was trying to portray in the imagery. Um, uh, I mean, Andre might scoff at what I do. <laughs> um, uh, he didn't particularly care for an intellectualization of his body of work. Uh, and I don't really try to tell people what to see. I tell them what I see and what it does to me and um, how it affects my daily life and, and how I try and learn from whatever experience that he's had. Um, and um, there are pictures that um, uh, certainly answer, you know, there are questions he throws out in pictures um, and um, there are pictures where he answers the question. There's, like, and there's a response. Yeah, like, what are yeah. some of those? Yeah. yeah oh, I'm, uh, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think if I can do it without, without looking at, at, at my slide presentation. Um, mm. And we will um, show some of the pictures in the, sure, in the sure. notes if you refer um, to anything. Well, um, so, so he, he comes to New York in 1936 and, um, 
he he by in 39 he he does a photograph of the empire state building and he defines um the photograph of rockefeller center with a lost cloud um um he he comes from paris uh cafe society um where he has this circle of eastern european artists that he hangs out with every day and he finds uh the city to be monolithic the people to be cold and um the city to be cold um he also um there's something I discovered um, in, in a handful of trips to Paris myself is that the light in Paris is different from the light in New York. Um, so he comes to New York and he finds the people different. The cafe societies aren't there. The art directors are insulated um, at the magazines. So he can't actually have direct interaction with them. And he's boxed out of all this magazine world. And he does a series of photographs of, of, of his sense of isolation of New York, uh, feeling of isolation in New York, um, which is arm and ventilator, lost cloud, and a handful of other images. Um, and um, then in 1963 or 64, when he's beginning to put everything together, um, he finds um, the Empire State Building in a puddle. <laughs> and he says, could you imagine after all these years to find it here? And, um, and the reality is, is that it was answering the first photograph. It was responding to his first sense of alienation. And one of the things that Andre does so beautifully uh, in terms of his investigation of cities is he always finds some sort of piece of nature in the city. Um, and here, after all this time, this building that frightened him is now been placed in a puddle where it belongs. It's kind of put in its place. Um, so it, it's, uh, you know, it's an oversimplification of, of the story. Um, but there are dozens of pictures that kind of just this, this yin-yang uh, going back and forth. Yeah. Does, uh, did he set up pictures? Did he state like the arm and ventilator? Did he say, hey, put your arm through the ventilator? Did he notice that and get it? No, he, he saw it, and, and there are three or four frames of that. He shot it three or four times. It was somebody working on a fan from inside a building. Oh, um, yeah. And, you know, to me, I mean, I look at that picture, and I think of him being in New York in 1936 or 37, and he feels like he's made the biggest mistake of his life leaving Paris. Um Although he probably would have been killed had he, as a Hungarian Jew, had he stayed in Europe during World War II, um, yeah. uh, um, he just—I mean, I, I think of that. First of all, I see the fan as um, emblematic of a SWAT sticker, um, and that he just stuck his arm through this fan. Um, was coming to the United States, so he just uh, uh, was about. You know, he'd amputated part of his body in order yeah. to, to, to come to New York. Um, Interesting. Huh. Uh, Did he set up the pipe and glasses? Was that staged? Or um, did he just look down and see He that? looked down. I mean, you know, he, he claims that um, another image taken, which is the famous uh, entree of uh, Mondrian Studio, that he saw it. Um, and actually had to move a few pieces of furniture to shoot it. And that Mondrian asked him what he was doing. And Mon he said his response to Mondrian was, you'll see after what I'm doing. Um, and again, getting back to this whole thing of conversation, he walks into Mondrian's studio and completely understands what Mondrian is doing and then tries to emulate um, the portraits of Mondrian, uh, emulate the body of work that he's seeing in order to explain to Mondrian, I get what you're doing. So he comes back with this series of photographs. And I don't know if you know the story, but um, when he first started shooting, he's shooting with a four by five camera and he's doing contact prints on card postal paper. So he's, he's making these little card postcard prints so that when he goes back to a studio, he hands him these small prints um, so he can say, look, I understand what you're doing. I get it. This is, you know, my, uh, my take on what you're doing. Um, and um, he claims that this, this, this meeting with Mondrian kind of set him off on another journey of, of 
of playing with shapes and ideas in a different way. Um, and I mean, the reality to that is that yes, he was affected by his encounter with Mondrian, but he was much more affected by a number of unknown Eastern Un European photographers that he interacted with in Europe. And I think in the 60s and 70s, it was cooler to hang his hat on Mondrian uh, than it was uh, of some unknown Hungarian photographer or a Hungarian painter that he worked with. Um, hmm. And, um, you know, he had this whole story of, you know, being a modernist before modernism came around and being a Cubist before Cubism. And he basically just looked at art, you know, I remember hearing an interview and he's saying like, what kind of art do you like? And he said, well, I like any art that's good. <laughs> he said, and then he, then he said, even bad art is good sometimes. Um, you know, so he was always willing to be open to any ideas. And I think as a folk artist, he was capable of looking at somebody's body of work or looking at a work of art and going home and saying, oh, I could do that in my own way. I can do that mm -hmm. in my own in my own speech. Um, so um, uh, he fed off of people and ideas, and um, which is why it you know everybody says to me like, okay, he was at House and Garden for sixteen to seventeen years, um, <clears throat> doing this what he defined as uh, hack work, um, and I've met a number of photographers who worked with him and around him at the time, and they said anybody would have died for that position. Um, he's a staff photographer at House and Garden. Um, uh, House and Garden attributes the look of their magazine to his imagery. And um, uh, he just laments that it's all these lost years carrying around heavy equipment and uh, not really being able to parlay it into any sort of art form. Um, I have a bit of a non sequitur. How's sure. your Hungarian? I mean, if you spent seven to eight years with him and you've read his journals. <laughs> um, we had his journals translated. Uh, Hungarian's a, a very difficult language. Um, <laughs> and uh, I know almost none. Um, one of the things about Hungarian and Hungarians, um, and Hungarians are seen, I mean, Andre is an outsider. I think of photographers as outsiders. Um, they're always observing. They're always stepping out of a scene. They're always kind of stepping back and 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 recording rather than being part of it. Um, mm -hmm. But you have this mm -hmm. thing of so Andre is a Jew in Hungary, so he's already a bit of an outsider, um, and Hungarians. By, are seen by Eastern Europeans as Western Europeans. <laughs> Western Europeans see Hungarians as Eastern. Yeah. Right. So they're already outsiders to the rest of us. To add to it, um, Andre had a, a rather significant lisp and his brother, who was his soulmate, a person we've neglected to talk about in this, this whole period, um, uh, had this intense stutter. And when they first started... Um, uh, investigating uh, photography, it was he and his brother playing with the camera. His brother was the, I always define his brother as the brains of the outfit. He's the person who figured out the formulas and, and, <laughs> and the technology for Andre. Um, and uh, so Andre had this intense relationship with his brother. So he was always a bit of an outsider looking in. And um, I think part of, part of the, part of the thing that, that, that I find um, attracts me about the body of work is that it's soulful. It's about outsiders looking in. It's about never really being part, always wanting to be part. Um, and um, there's always a bit of lamenting, a bit of afterthought in the body of work. Um, there's always, it's almost as if he's lingering on the still life and he's lingering on the beauty of glasses and pipe. Um, um, he's lingering on this images of the fork or he's, um, you know, later on when he grasps this, this beautiful glass sculpture uh, that reminds him of Elizabeth um, and he begins to photograph that, there he's setting up photographs. Um, you asked, does he set, you know, he, he has all these still lives he did at the end of his life, but they're almost like found photographs. He sets up the still lives and then lives in the apartment walking past these still lives. I always think of the aisles in his apartment um, 
as streets and he's almost doing street photographs and he stumbles upon these still lives that he set up but the light has changed so dramatically it's like it's like this a is new... the assignment ruben gave me last uh, week yeah that's so amazing <laughs> to hear you say that yes wow. there's wow. A philosophical underpinning to this assignment now really really yeah it's fantastic yeah. to hear huh. that Oh man, honestly, we could talk all day. Clearly, you know so much, and I have a million questions. But I think we need to wrap up. Do you have any, okay. Suzanne, Suzanne? Do you want to? I do. Close? I just have okay. two. Qu- I have okay. two questions, but I think it. they're short. Okay. Um, okay. The, well, the first one may be a little longer. I just I'm so curious about like the journals and then spending time with him. Which was which really cemented this role of curator um, and sort of. I, I guess just his sort of champion for for time, um, which was the bigger, I don't know, the bigger catalyst for that, the the time with him or reading his journals. Um, I think the catalyst was when I was sixteen, looking at his pictures. Fair, um, yeah. You know, um, um, I fell in love with. Um, who I thought he was um, as as a person. I fell in love with his soul. Um, and um, I saw beauty in the same things that he saw. I found sadness in the same things that he found sad. Um, and um, uh, after a, a number of months um, of he and I battling over who he was when I first um, got to meet him. Um, um, I mean, I went in with this whole grandiose picture of who he was and he decided he needed to break me (laughs) Um, because he was human and he wanted me to see him as a human being. So um, that first couple of months was pretty rocky because I was fairly stubborn and I thought that, you know, I was going to convince him that he was happy. Um, I mean, if, if you look at his body of work, you would think that, um, he, he has this these light photographs and these beautiful pictures. You would think he would be happy having created them. And since I had spent now seven years emulating him, if he wasn't happy, what the hell was I doing here? You know? <laughs> so, so it was in my vested interest to convince him he was this, this, you know, incredible soul and he was fulfilled. And, you know, his wife had just died. He had just spent you know, the last 40 years of his life battling to get this recognition. And here I come in with this, you know, you know, you need to be happy in front of me. So we had this long, (laughs) long struggle over who he was. Um, But once I accepted um, the fact that he was a whole human being, um, I got to see the fun part and I got to see him photograph and we had much deeper conversations. Um, The, the fact that all the papers that he collected and kept um, mostly contradicted most of the fabricated stories that he created, and it <laughs> kind of sent me on this whole other journey um, of of trying to figure out who he really was. Um, and I think now, having done it for as long as I have, I've kind of circled back to. Um, kind of telling a love story of telling a story of a man's journey in life um and that that's really what the body of work is about um, look it, it couldn't have come to a more perfect person like i think you're it's so great that you are the 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 inheritor of this legacy to explain it to everybody to help people appreciate him um it sounds it's like a match it's a it's a it's a great fit I think I grew into the story, into the fit, because of the power of the body of work. Um, wow. Uh, what a nice thing to say. Yeah. I, I hope people will listen to this and check out the show notes. Really get to know Cortez's work. I think it uh, inspires, it's inspired a history of amazing photographers, um, and it's broad. There's a lot of interesting work there. So I hope people will take some time to get to know Cortez. We'll put some links in to the show notes where they can maybe go take a look at some of that. And, and we just have one last question for you, Robert. If you could okay. describe, if you could describe um, Cortez's work in one word, what word would you use? It'd have to be two words. You can three. hyphenate. I'm good with that. He photographed what he felt. His photographs came from feelings, um, and the source of his work was 
from his soul. Um, wow. I'll come up. I'll come up with a one word eventually, but um, <laughs> I, I think I, that's I, quite I, lovely. With a hundred-year career, maybe two yeah. words is deserved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I mean, Robert, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure, and hearing all these kind of personal stories uh, about Cortez, this obviously just legendary photographer. I feel like I somehow know him better now. So. Oh. Thank you very, very much. Um, I will wrap it up. Our show is recorded and produced in San Francisco. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to get show notes, see photos, and post comments. Leave ratings and reviews on iTunes or wherever you listen, and don't forget to subscribe. We get new listeners from you telling your friends and spreading the word. If you know someone who might get something from us, please send them a link. Thank you to Mitchell Foreman for our theme music. Robert Gerbo for joining us today and all of you for hanging out. We appreciate your attention and hope you've given me some things to think about and tell next time.